right. Welcome back to another episode of the Black Menaces podcast. My name is Nate. I'm your host for today, and I'm here with my co-host. Rachel Weaver, we are so happy to be back with you guys this week. Yes, indeed. And we have a great guest here on the show with us, uh, Professor or Dr. Derek Brooms. Uh, Brother Bro- or Dr. Brooms, you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yes, yes. Thank you so much, uh, Nate and Rachel, for having me this week. Appreciate the work that you all are doing with the intentionality. As Brother Nate said, my name is Derek Brooms. I'm a professor of Africana Studies and Sociology at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, hailing from Chicago. And of course, for folks who are from Chicago, you got to know which side you're claiming. Yes, so, sorry. I'm, I'm from <laughs> Chicago and I didn't know that until right now. So I'm from the South Side. I'm from the South Side. So Okay, sorry. What part? So I'm from, uh, grew up in South Shore and then moved uh, pretty close to Morgan Park area. So okay. uh, uh, out in the, you know, in the hundreds and went to school, uh, went to high school in Chatham. So okay. right, right next to Grand Crossing. So uh, yep. been around the city. Where are you from, Rachel? I am from like the Woodlawn neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So, and my mom works in South, well, kind of not South Shore. She works at Jackson Park Hospital on the yeah, South Side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. And I worked in high school. I worked at Jules right across the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes. And gotcha, I went to, gotcha. yeah, and I went to Whitney Young. So, okay. I did my undergrad at University of Chicago. So, oh, you know, I know Woodlawn very well. Yes. <laughs> different ways. So, yes, yes, yes. Y'all just love Chicago. Just always talking about Chicago. Hey, <laughs> listen, the rest of the from Chicago. Look, the rest of the Black Menaces are haters because anytime <laughs> I meet somebody from Chicago, we have a moment like this. It's, it's a vibe, man. It's, and they, it's, you know, it's a Chicago like vibe. It. Exactly. They don't understand, like, Chicago people, we have such pride of our city. Like, right. you don't get it. We're right. just jealous. That's all it is. We, that, I, can't, yeah, yeah. I can't rep Canton, Michigan, like, like y'all rep Detroit. All I'm going to say is you said it, not us. That's all I'm going <laughs> to say. Thank you. Thank you. Let it be known. So when the other black people hear this, they're going to know, too. Yeah. I, I don't expose <laughs> everybody. Yeah, and, and the reason I say where I'm from, because that shapes my worldview, right? Mm, and yeah. so when I think about it, and, and I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about this, but when I think about the work that I engage in, when I think about uh, the ways that I show up, Chicago was and is and continues to be formative in my understanding of community and how we can work collectively to try to cultivate change, whether that's in a micro level, right, within our own families, or maybe even within our own communities, or if we even look at the macro level. Um, and so Chicago for me is that, you know, as Rachel said, that point of pride because, uh, you know, the same hood that shape you, right, mm-hmm. can help you operate in particular type of ways and navigate particular type of spaces. Um, and so, you know, there's there's things that I love about Chicago and things that I really wish we could change. But uh, again, as I think about the work that I engage in, um, Chicago will always be home um, because it's, helped sharpen my lens for how we can think about not only ourselves, but each other um, and moving forward as well. Um, Overwhelmingly, yeah, overwhelmingly, uh, uh, most of the courses that I teach are are based in sociology and and African-American, excuse me, Africana studies, black studies. We have different iterations, uh, Pan-African studies, et cetera. Uh, My undergraduate degree is in African and African-American studies. My master's degree is in African and African American studies and my PhD is in sociology. And so uh, I've never steered too far away from what would be the roots of black uh, study, black studies, both, I'm using both interchangeably. Uh, Overwhelmingly, my my research primarily looks at black boys and men's lived experiences, as well as their pathways to and through college. Um, 
and, and education to me and for me is, is a, a critical space because it's not simply about schooling and, and, and we, can, uh, we can talk about this. And so uh, primarily what I'm really focused on through the, through the lives and lens of black boys and men is educational equity, racial justice and liberation. And, you know, in the spirit of the Black Panthers, in the spirit of, uh, you know, Black educators like Joyce King and um, uh, Carter G. Woodson, like Anna Julia Cooper, uh, like Mary McLeod Bethune and so many others, right, that have come before me. Um, you know, I think about, you know, how do I, my main thing is how do I make a difference? Mm -hmm. And so I try to use my, my teaching, my research and my service and by service, I'm particularly thinking about community-based work um, that will never show up on my CV. It's not gonna be on my resume because mm -hmm. I'm not trying to sell that to somebody else. Um, but I feel that this is work that's part of my responsibility as a critically engaged community member uh, who cares very deeply about the health and well-being of black folks. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. We're excited to hear more about, about that and about the work that you're doing. Um, so thank you for introducing yourself. And then Rachel, do you want to go ahead and share the Menace moment and then we'll jump right yes. into it? Yes, I'm very excited for our Menace moment today, guys. It is someone that I've gotten to know very well over the past year. And it felt very fitting for what's happening in Utah right now when this um, podcast episode um, becomes live. It will be a couple days after some bills were tr have tried to be passed in Utah to prevent um, diversity and inclusion positions and um, really it taught at, uh, in higher education. And this person has been fighting it um, in the legislature and just in their community engagement. And it is um, Sandra Hollins, who is also my SOAR. She is in the Salt Lake, uh, Greater Salt Lake alumni chapter, um, but I'm trying to give a little background on her. And so she was born on May 11th in 1970 in New Orleans, Louisiana. And then she got her bachelor's of science in business management actually at the University of Phoenix. Then she went and got her master's degree in social work from the University of Utah. And then she um, became a licensed clinical social worker after that in 2009. And she focused mostly on substance abuse and advocacy for Salt Lake City's um, homeless or unhoused populations. And through this, she started um, volunteering for a lot of organizations that outreach with homeless communities. Um, and then in 2014, that's when she decided to run for public office. And in 2014, she also defeated um, a Republican candidate and she became the first African-American woman ever elected to the Utah State Legislature, representing District 23, which is a huge deal. Huge. So she is definitely, yeah. And she just said on Saturday at an event we had um, for Founders Day, she mentioned um, that she's now the only Democrat holding, um, like, a, I forget what her position is, but she's leading something and, and she's the only Democrat in uh, the Utah State Legislature that's doing that. Like and so she's committee she is position? Really, is that, was that it? It's some type of like, she's leading, you know how they have like different um, groups within the legislature, like they'll have different sector i don't know i don't know much about politics in that way but you know how yeah so it's she is leading something don't know what that is and i'm not going to try to misquote it so yes but i'm really proud of her and she is honestly i mean she's a minority in the legislature she's a democrat and she's the again the only black woman only black person in many of the spaces that she's in and fighting for 
us. And it's interesting, you know, she doesn't even represent like a majority black community, but her face represents our community in the legislature. And if you, I'll try to attach this in the, the caption of this, you should see her speaking about the bill that was trying to be passed. And she just speaks so passionately. And, and I just am so grateful for her because she is our voice on the policy side in Utah for when things like this happen and keeping us informed and rallying the community. Sandra has done an amazing job and I am I'm proud to call her my sore. So I just wanted to highlight, she is a true minister. She is fighting those white men at the Capitol all the time and, and doing that heavy work of just that concerted effort to continue to, you know, keep white supremacy alive in this state on a policy standpoint. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Absolutely, yeah. It's good to know that. I, you know, having met Sandra Hollins, I didn't know a lot about her, but that is a, that's an intimidating position to be in, and so she that just makes her all the more special for the the work that she's doing and for the spaces that she has to be in on a daily basis. Because just being at BYU was draining for me. I can't imagine being in a room full of grown-up children who don't have the excuse of college to to back them up, you know, when they're making these decisions. So that's yeah. Uh, oh. And one more thing I wanted to mention, I meant to mention this, one of the most important bills that she is passing, um, I think it's almost, uh, oh, it passed actually. Um, it's called the Izzy Bill and it is to address bullying. For those who don't know, Izzy um, is a, was a young girl in the Davis County School District who was being bullied because of her race and she committed suicide at 10 years old and it was a very sad case and in her honor sandra said that we need to do something about bullying specifically with um, black children and this bill now requires schools to keep record of students who report bullying not necessarily the people who um, are the bullies but the students who are reporting that so that they can make sure they're adequately helping these students um, get resources or remove them from situations because a lot of the time the focus is on the person who's doing the bullying rather than the person who's receiving that that treatment and not helping them. So that is one of her most recent bills that is very important and honors uh, such an important legacy. Yeah, I love that. And the, the thing with that's, that was so sad about that case too is that uh, that bullying went on for a very long time and Izzy tried to report it and her family tried to report it and they the 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 administration didn't do anything and it wasn't that in Davis County yep yeah Davis County is currently under investigation from the yes. justice department yep um, the federal the federal government is investigating Davis County for some corruption and for um you know negligence and, and just a whole lot of things going on in that school district in particular um so something that could have definitely been avoided um but because of the deliberate negligence of people in that in that that county um, in that school district, you know, a, a little black girl took her life at ten mm -hmm. years old, um, and so yeah, shout out to to Representative Hollins, right, Representative? Yeah, Representative, yes, Representative Hollins, for doing the Lord's work, literally in hell. <laughs> 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 yes, that's a, that's a quote, Nate. Okay, I love that. Doing the Lord's work in hell. That's that's how we should describe being black ministers in Utah, to be honest. Yeah. Or being a professor in the South teaching, you know, all the things that you Africana studies. Yeah. I'm sure you get yeah. some interesting things at University they're of Tennessee. Dealing, yeah, they're dealing with that down there too. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 uh you know anti-blackness is real. That let's mm -hmm. we can just call it what it is, and and it shows up. 
in numerous forms and whether you're a professor or you're you know high school teacher or whether you're an everyday citizen who has jobs in other ways uh, what we know through this black experience in this american project is that uh, there's you know very real uh, realities of, of anti-blackness that we have to navigate on, on an ongoing basis. And it may look different for some of us. It may be more projected or protruded for some of us, but uh, it's real and it affects the masses of us. So that when we think about Tennessee, just as a quick example, mm -hmm. uh, uh, we can think about historically black colleges and universities, right? So I'm thinking about the, the, the public HBCUs in Maryland that had to sue for equitable funding We've seen that students at Florida A&M University have begun the work of uh, trying to push forward a lawsuit against the state of Florida for intentional underfunding. And Tennessee State uh, is the other land-grant institution in the state of Tennessee that has been underfunded for years. Forbes Magazine, I don't remember the, 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 the authors uh, who might've wrote this article, but they just put out an article maybe towards the end of last year. Uh, they just talked about the, you know, the millions into billions of dollars that HBCUs have been underfunded mm -hmm. because of the legacy of racism and anti-Blackness that not only, that it not only affects us interpersonally, uh, but also affects our families, affects our communities, and affects our institutions as well. Yeah. And at the same time, still producing, you know, more PhD candidates, more, you know, more excellence yeah. than a lot of these other universities that have all of this funding, you know, so right. it's amazing what we're able to do with so little, right? Uh, I think this what's the saying is you got to work twice as hard to get half as much. That's right. But then at the same time, while we're working twice as hard, we put out you know five times more, ten times more than than a lot of these other places do, where you know where they have the funding to do different things, to build new buildings every other day. You know, yeah, pretty amazing what we're able to do. Um, so you know, what was it, Dr. Brooms, that started your passion for academia? What made you want to to pursue higher education as a career? Uh, it was it was pretty late, I, I think, for me, and I and I, I want to be intentional in sharing this because I think that there are some ways, uh, and, and all of us have our own stories, right? And so one of the things is that uh, you know none of us lives a flatline story, if you will, or the you know as Chimamanda Adichie talks about the danger of a single story to act as if things only happen in one way. Mm. Uh, for me, I actually did not have dreams and aspirations of going into academia because if you would have asked me what is academia as a high school student, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. If you would have asked me that as a college student, even as I'm in the academy, I still would not have been able to tell you. Um, I'm, a, I'm a first generation everything. So first generation college student, first generation uh, graduate student, and of course, you know, first generation faculty member. So there's a lot of learning through the processes and through the experiences. Um, the short version of the story is that uh, what was transformative to me was uh, my first year in college, I initially thought I wanted to, to, to major in computer science in some kind of capacity. I really enjoyed computers. Uh, my father had a computer when we was growing up and then played video games on it, did writing on it, did some programming on it. And after taking a couple of uh, courses that focused on Black life, globally. So an African civilization class where I'm learning about, uh, you know, Egypt and, you know, the, the kingdoms of Ni uh, Ni Niger, the Great Nile River, et cetera, Nile Valley contributions to civilization, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
I ended up switching my major to African and African American studies. I, I didn't even know that you could major in it, right? But when I went and talked to my advisor during my second year, opened up the catalog, and the first one it just alphabetically was African and African American studies. I was like, yo, can I choose this right here? And we looked at the curriculum. I'd already taken five of the classes, mm. but I but I didn't know that these were five of the classes because it wasn't necessarily promoted in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was transformative because it sent me on a path that in many ways I was already on. I just didn't realize it. Um, thinking back and reflecting back to some of my uh, K through eight experiences where growing up on the South side of Chicago, it's hyper racially segregated, right? So the schools that I went to were not predominantly black schools, they were black schools, right? So there were no white students, no other students of another racial ethnic background that attended the schools at the time that I attended there. Um, and overwhelmingly, the overwhelming majority of my teachers were black teachers. And so there were ways that black life, black history, black culture, black representation was in front of us every day by the folks who stood in front of the classroom, engaged us in all manner of ways. And I want to acknowledge folks who worked as staff members as well, working in the front office, working in the cafeteria. Um, These were folks who reflected to us our own possibilities. And I had teachers who uh, I first learned about uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar at Langston Hughes in fifth grade because we had a reading assignment. And Mm -hmm. since that time, I've been writing poetry ever since, right? So I can give thanks and gratitude to my teachers who planted that seed. And then it was kind of watered once I got to college, right? I can say some of the same things about high school uh, with some of the teachers like Miss Jones, who was my ninth grade world history teacher who poured into us um, and, and just, you know, looked at me as somebody who could achieve. And I had teachers who just believed in me in a number of ways. And I, and I was capable, but again, it's not just about your own capabilities. You need that support, you need that nourishment, uh, you need that care and concern. So that by the time I got to college and I get really introduced to this discipline and field of African-American studies, uh, African and African-American studies is what they called it. Uh, It opened up this world to me that I was already intrigued by, interested in, and wanted to understand, primarily because what I wanted to understand was how is it that I can grow up on the south side of Chicago and not know that the University of Chicago existed until Mm -hmm. I'm applying to colleges. And even as I'm ranked very high with a high GPA, et cetera, in my graduating class, I still don't know about one of the top ranked schools in the nation that's literally a bus ride, one bus ride. It wasn't even far from where you went to school. Exactly, it's a a three mile bus ride, one bus. Um, And so that, you know, that never sat well with me. And it, it, it it really made me realize that there's ways in which there are opportunities, resources, institutions, things that are available that we can aspire to if we know about it, right? Um, And so, you know, I wanted to understand why is it that I lived in this hyper-segregated neighborhood and was Mm -hmm. my neighborhood the only one? Or why is it that my, the schools that I went to, it was only black students at these schools. Uh, I'm trying to understand these things in black and and, and African and African-American studies helps me put a frame in on that. So my my great-grandmother, on my, my, my father's side, she's from Chicago. So we go back at least five generations, which is not typical uh, for mm-hmm. folks in Chicago. Uh, and so I wanted to understand, you know, my, my mother's parents who moved to Chicago, what were the push and pull factors? So even just starting with trying to understand my own life, my own journey, my family dynamics and history, uh, African and African-American studies helped me 
shape up some understanding of those things. And then I'll, I'll add uh, that the greatest gift I got, the two, two of the greatest gifts I got in undergrad, relatively speaking, of course, um, was having opportunities to learn more about myself, right? Being exposed to other folks, uh, you know, learning from a diverse group of friends, and, you know, even, I mean, having friends who, who are, you know, racialized as Black and having a ton of money, and we ain't got a whole lot in common other than us being racialized as Black because I had no money. Mm. Uh, and trying to, you know, like, just trying to understand, like, man, how, you know, how, how your family get to that kind of position? Right. Um, so that, you know, that self-learning, self-exploration was one. And then it was this good sister who's now a uh, professor. She was a senior when I was a freshman. She gifted me. Uh, and I still have it to this day. She gifted me this read, this suggested reading for Black students. And it was a two-page document. Um, and by the time I graduated, uh, one of the things I did was I reflected on that list. And I just started checkmarking, like, how many of these readings that I engage with? And I'm an African-American studies major. It was probably about 10%. And I was dissatisfied. And I was like, there's got to be more. Mm. And that's what uh, really propelled me to pursue a master's degree in African-American studies, because I felt like, sure, I learned a few things, but there was clearly way more that I could learn. And, you know, the, I mean, I, I remember this to this day, one of the books that, that was just not, that was on her list uh, that I never engaged with in any of those classes was Carter G. Wilson's Miseducation of the Negro. Mm. And I mentioned this book precisely because Carter G. Wilson has a PhD from the University of Chicago. I'm um, excuse me, he has a master's degree from the University of Chicago. So here's a person who's educated at this school that I happen to attend that, we're not even engaging with his works, and he's considered as one of the, you know, uh, uh, you know, profound historical figures for teaching history, and of course, a, you know, a, a, a large figure in Black history. And like, how is it that I can major in this field, and I don't come across his work? So, uh, I was excited about what I had learned, and at the same time, I was dissatisfied. So, um, that lent and, and and encouraged me to pursue a master's degree in African and African-American studies. And at that time, during my master's program, I was like, maybe I might want to teach in college one day. I don't know. And what I understood was, well, you need a PhD to do that. That's what I understood. And I didn't know about community colleges where you could have a master's degree and some doctoral study. I, I didn't know that. Um, so my pursuing a PhD after finishing my master's was in case I wanted to teach in higher education. Um, so it was, it's, it was not, my main point is that it was not this straightforward path that I knew what I was going for when I got to college. And then I tried to align these things up. It was still pursuing my own kind of exploration and self-learning and through that all. And, and this is what I told people when I was in undergrad, you know, people, uh, kind of trifling, trifling, you know, black studies, African and African American studies, what are you going to do with that kind of degree? And, and I always responded, first of all, I'm gonna do whatever I want to do. Period. And second of all, there you go. I'm going to make a difference and I'm going to make a difference to my communities. And I didn't even know, even as I could attest to that, and I, I mean, I, I felt convicted. I felt firmly rooted in I'm going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that was going to be. So I don't want to make it seem like, yep, I had my path. I was straight. And that's what I pursued. I just believed. Right. And I got that. I can talk about that from my grandmother. Right. Uh, that you got to believe on the path. You got to believe in the path that you're on, mm -hmm. that you're going to be positioned to do what you've been called to do. Um, and so uh, uh, during my PhD program, I taught high school. Uh, I taught high school at two different schools in Chicago and in Washington, D.C. And it was through those experiences that I really started to understand, like, 
yeah, I really want to do this at the higher education level. So it took me through pursuing graduate studies and getting some teaching experiences within two different cities to have a better understanding of what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And still, even as I said that, I still didn't even really know what it meant to be a professor. It was just, mm. I want to teach at the college level. That makes sense. Okay. So as you as you started teaching at the college level, um, as you started doing your research, getting your PhD program, what made you decide to study the black male lived experience and the black male college experience? And then what mm-hmm. challenges did you run into trying to do that? Because I'd imagine there's not a lot of modern research or infrastructure for you to pull from. So you have to get a lot of your own data. Yeah, so for me, it, it, it just goes back to, in terms of studying black male experiences and really tying that to like black boys and men and tying that to lived experience in education and, and, and specifically why I look at lived experiences in education is because we really can't understand people's educational journeys if we don't understand the social and cultural context of their lives. Right. Um, So if I look at myself again, I I can start with me. My freshman GPA during college was a 2.2. And when folks look at that, and this is this gets into uh, part of what is the anchor of my research is that uh, we have to resist these kind of flatline stories that we tell about folks. So if you look at my GPA, there's one translation that would suggest that, oh, uh, he's not cut out to be at this school. You see, he's struggling. The reality was, is I didn't have any of the books. I didn't have any money. Mm. And so if you might imagine writing papers for classes on books that you've not read um, or writing papers, you know, for classes where all you really have is the notes that you had from class discussion, that makes that plight, you know, that academic plight much more challenging. Mm. And for me, um, being able to get a C plus average, what I said to myself was, that when I get books, I'm gonna be straight. If I can, mm-hmm. if I can make it through this time period, I'm looking at this as temporal. This is not gonna be my entire four years because I'm gonna have to, you know, hustle and come up with a plan because I can't. This ain't gonna work for four years. I can't do this for four years because it's gonna crush my soul in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I, what I, what I looked at was um, I can transform, you know, what might be C's into B's because I'm gonna have access to more information, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So. When I think about, like, again, I can think about my own story in that kind of way to say that sometimes black black men are just simply judged by statistics, data that's available. And folks ain't looking at the whole picture. It's just one snapshot. So freshman year, 2.2 GPA, it was people who said to me, I don't think you're going to make it. They didn't ask me, hey, what's going on? How can we be a resource? How might we support you? Is there anything we can do to help? It was, this is your GPA. We don't think you're gonna make it, um, and and not even a good luck. Hope you do. And it was that was that was the end of the conversation. Mm. And for me, it was that that it's difficult for me to believe you care about me if you're not asking me about how I'm doing while I'm trying to navigate this. Now, of course, the other thing we can add to that is I go from 100% black schools to a college that's 4% black. Mm. So we can, we can, we know we got the, all the language now, culture shock, microaggressions, racial stereotypes, mm-hmm. stereotype threat, et cetera, et cetera. So what does it mean to try to navigate all these ways in which people are projecting you as 
Oh, you must have got literally. I'm, I'm repeating things that people said to me. You must have got. You must have got accepted because of affirmative action, right? Mm-hmm. Or they must have just was handing out admissions when you got your letter. And so there's these micro messages that people are sending that clearly state we don't believe in your academic ability and we don't think you're good enough, right? So I'm battling that in class while also knowing I don't have money for books, while also knowing that I can't call and ask my family because. It's, they don't have the financial resources to really support me in that way. Um, and so how do you try to, you know, as uh, I think about uh, uh, brother uh, Sky Zoo, you know, the rap, he just came out with a, a, another album uh, this year, but he's got this song from one of his previous albums called like making it through hysteria. So how do I deal with all of these things that are being thrown at me while still trying to pursue my educational and personal goals? So that's kind of one part of it. Another part of it that is very personal is, when I uh, when I started in ninth grade, we had 300 and let's say 30 students in my freshman class. When we graduated, we had 99. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So clearly, there's something that's happening. I'm not I'm not suggesting that I was the best, but there's opportunities and second and third and fourth chances I got that many other people didn't get. Right? There's ways that things are happening to people along that educational continuum that uh, you know throws them off. Uh, uh, you know, creates a pit stop, delays their progress, all of those things that can happen. Uh, And so I wanted to look at what's happening to black boys as they're trying to navigate these uh, educational spaces while also navigating neighborhood contexts, navigating societal messages, right? Navigating uh, media projections of black boys and men and so that's why in my work, I look at lived experiences and schooling experiences because how people think about us within schooling spaces is over, you know, oftentimes really relying upon these societal, stereotypical, flatline, uh, uh, homogenous messages and, and narratives about who we are that often is, you know, rooted in anti Blackness and also rooted in deficit based rhetoric and narratives. Um, and so part of my work is really to push back against that. So a prevailing narrative, as an example, especially as I think about the communities that I'm from or, or lived in or uh, have worked in in places like Chicago, Atlanta, Louisville, et cetera, is Black boys don't care about education, right? And sure, there are some Black boys who don't, but that can't be the sole reason why on the south side of Chicago, you look at a community like in Inglewood or you look at a community like Back of the Yards or you look at a community like Arbon Gresham, and the high school graduation rate across these communities is 40%, 45% for black men. That couldn't just be because they don't care. There's something mm-hmm. that's happening in these schools that's telling black boys that we don't think you can make it. And one part of this, of, of how we navigate it is we might accommodate it, right? You know what? You're right. We're not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. So why try? So then the hurt, you know, the, we, we bear the weight of that but we don't really interrogate what's happening within schools that either keep black boys on their pathways uh, to, and we could talk about that as educational attainment, or we could talk about that as healthy growth and development. We can talk about that as masculinity and manhood develop. We can, we can talk about all of these things that are connected to how we're trying to make sense of our life world. Um, And so I just, I wanted to investigate this kind of narrative of do black boys care about school and what is it that makes them care? Or what is it that makes them not care? Uh, in what ways do black boys 
think about themselves and their future selves. In what ways might education be important to them? And so my work is really about positioning Black boys and Black men to tell their own stories through their own words, as opposed to overwhelmingly too many folks just talking about them, but not talking with them. Because mm -hmm. uh, my question would be when folks say, Black boys don't care about education. I just ask them, like, which Black boys did you talk to? Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's no answer to that, right? Because they ain't talked to them. It's just, heard somebody else say it, I'm going to regurgitate it and, 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 you know, pass it along. Yeah, and then, uh, so my work is really about just kind of unpacking some of the, the deficit, unpacking some of the uh, experiences that Black men and boys have, and then positioning them as experts about their own lives. Because that's the other thing, right? Is that if you if you want to know what's going on and, and why some things may be going in a particular direction, how about we talk to them? In some kind of way, that seems like this novel idea. And I, and I don't understand that, but I get it because there's folks who, if I see one black boy or black man or a few, I know about all black boys and black men. And and you know, there's you know, severe limitations to that, of course. Mm. So in your like research and the things that you found what were like some of the things that they shared or any like trends you found among black men and why you know the graduation rates are the way they're looking in places like chicago yeah it's 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 a number of factors um you know in chicago if you talk about some of the communities i mentioned like we can you know i grew up in south shore for a while if we think about uh, Chatham, if we, you know, we can think about a number of right. these neighborhoods. Um, I think there's a number of things. I think that there are too many folks who have little to no expectations of black boys and men to do well. Mm -hmm. And when I don't expect you to do well, I'm also not going to give you the support to overcome challenges that you face. I think there are ways in which educational spaces are hostile to black boys. And we can look at the overrepresentation in uh, special education. We can look at the suspension and expulsion rate. Mm. Uh, we can look at the overinvestment in supporting them athletically and then ignoring and, and miseducating them mm. academically. Um, I think that there are ways, as you know, and this is not a participant, but as James Baldwin says, that, you know, we, we, you know, black boys are met with this notion of you just should aspire to mediocrity. Don't, don't try to be great. Like that's that's above and beyond you. And for those ones who do well, they're exceptionalized, right? They're different from the others. Um, and we're not investigating uh, what might've put them on that particular trajectory. But when I talk to guys, I mean, it's, it's a number of things. It's feeling like they're not cared for in schools and they don't have support. And you can imagine the compounding effect of that over years, right? right? So it's not one interaction. It's, you know, stories of guys saying that I don't, I didn't, you know, my school was on probation. I didn't have no homework. I just got passed to the next grade. Um, or, uh, you know, so we can we can talk about things like social promotion or the various ways that some of our schools are, are uh, structurally disadvantaged so that then negatively impact students and may not have hmm. stronger support systems. Right. Um, we can think about negative messaging, right? So, so if I'm constantly being told, if I, if I listen to music in some ways, if I turn on the television and look at the news, if I look at movies, if I'm getting all of these messages that black boys are no good, that you know we're bad, we're criminals, we're thugs, mm -hmm. individually, it's hard to, to overcome some of those. 
right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so we need collective efforts. Uh, so those would be, you know, some of the things that then, you know, some of them in a very real way did not necessarily have parents or guardians who had strong college going knowledge. So mm -hmm. even though I could say, I want my son, you know, in this particular case, I want my son to go to college. Okay, but what does that, what, is, what does that mean? What do I have to do to get there? And so if I don't have that kind of family knowledge and I don't go to a school where that's the expectation and they're gonna support that, that's a significant gap between the aspiration and the reality of it. Um, and so those are some of those things. Something as you, you were talking that I thought about, or even as I was preparing to talk with you knowing your research, um, and this gets a little into family sociology. I was a sociology major too, so woohoo. All right, all right, all right. But I would think it would be interesting, and I don't know if you look at this, so this is kind of like, let me know your thoughts or if that contributes, just like um, how patriarchy contributes to that and also just like the way that women are treated in families, just because Black women are like the most highly educated, like, subgroup um, and the way that Black women are, the expectations put around us and the difference with Black men, right, and what that translates to in families and like because of mass incarceration, how there are a lot of single um, mothers and like how that translates to their relationship with their sons and like I just am interested in how that maybe plays a role too possibly. Um, the like, the, like I wonder, like I feel like that's a bit, like there's a family sociology approach too you could take to this and or do to learn more and and you know apply those hypotheses. Yeah, so thank you for that, Rachel. And and, and you're absolutely right. There are family dynamics that play a role in this. <clears throat> it can look different for different guys because you got to take into account class backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Mm -hmm. Types of resources they have access to, family structures. Uh, you know, in black families, you talk about extended family. You talk about fictive family. Mm -hmm. So how do they have other folks who might show up and offer support? But I want to go ahead and take a step back, right? We, we can't ever take patriarchy off the table, right? Because patriarchy, uh, you know, creates a particular type of dynamic that all folks have to negotiate. It doesn't just harm women. It also harms men. Right. right? And so when you're coming from a working class, lower class, no class background, mm. overwhelmingly, uh, boys are adultified earlier. They have men forms mm. of responsibilities earlier. And there's a push from families, both implicit and explicit, for when you finish high school or maybe even before, you need to go and work and earn money to mm. support the family. So in that type of way, right. uh, we can think about family needs. I want to make sure we talk about that. The, what is it that's constricting families in such a way where there's a need for additional financial support, et cetera, and then that demand is placed on a young man who then may mm. have an interest in going to college, but I need to forego that for now right? and need to go find a job. I, I think that contributes to what we see in pursuing the military, right? The military is, I can have a job and I can earn money that mm. I can send and, and support my family. So I think, I think that's one. Uh, a second part of that patriarchy is we also socialize boys and girls very differently, right? There is a family or, or familial and communal expectation for girls to do well in school. You're right. Yeah, that is true. Mm -hmm. Boys, I hope he I hope he gets it at some point, right? We, right. we, we work on hope no, with boys. That's so true. We work with expectation on girls, right? Mm -hmm. yep. you know, probably, and so if we're socializing that from very early ages, right? 
Uh, I would even argue that there are some ways we socialize uh, uh, school as a place that we don't even tell boys that you're going to learn. It's just a place you got to go. So we can think about these kind of micro messages, but that's also still coming out of, uh, you know, within patriarchy, I think about, uh, you know, manhood ideals and masculinity tropes, right? To be a man means to provide. So if I go to college, you ain't earning no money. I, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. in many ways, except for, you know, some of these new NIL uh, uh, policies and laws for, for student athletes, but you ain't going to college and making a whole bunch of money in college. So if your family's in need, that kind of puts you in a space of tension to be able to support them in some meaningful and tangible ways. Um, but then also we have to be very careful because we have to be very careful of not adopting other people's language and narratives to talk about our families, right? So I think of, you didn't say this. I'm, I, I read something earlier. That's really where this is coming from. But what you said made me think about it. So we see language used as, you know, they come from a broken family. Whose family is broken? Mm. Right? Um, or uh, we, again, I'm thinking about Patrick Moynihan, you family sociology, right? Uh, who, you know, for all intents and purposes, bastardized single parent households in black families. Well, okay, well, when we when we think about some of the laws, regu- regulations, legislation, policies that are passed in this country, we had things where if you wanted to earn, have access to welfare benefits, you couldn't have a man living in the house. Right. So let's talk about how policies yep. structure families in such a way mm-hmm. that push men out of custodial spaces where, because if you if they come, and they find you there, you could lose those welfare benefits yeah. and you're in need. That's one, of course. But then, of course, you also mentioned, Rachel, mass incarceration. We can't ever take that off the table because, you know, the war on drugs in too many ways was a war on Black folks, right? A war on poor Black folks, mm-hmm. um, a war on poor Latino folks, the folks of Hispanic descent, right? So uh, there's, you know, and that's coming from federal policies, right, that are then enacted and, and activated through local governments. So there's a, a real way that, uh, you know, Black family has been under attack in a number of different ways that lends itself for, uh, you know, young boys, young men to engage in various types of activities that actually may be harmful for themselves and others that does not help them meet some of the goals and desires and aspirations that they may have. So from a family sociology perspective, I, I'm right there with you. And in my uh, book that came out in 2021, Stakes is High, um, the, the first two chapters, uh, substantive chapters, kind of look at how they're making sense of messages from their families and lived experiences that is connected to issues of family dynamics, community setting, neighborhood effects, uh, thinking about William Julius Wilson's work with the truly disadvantaged, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you for that question. Rachel. Yes, I love family sociology. Mm-hmm. So it's and it's connected to like everything. So yes. I mean, they, they all are, but it's particularly it's definitely in this what you're talking about. It's all, you know, connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in some instances, I mean, in, you know, even with some of the guys I've worked with where, you know, their their parent or guardian figure, woman figure will say, I need you to go to work. You know, I can't afford for you to go to college. And and that's mm-hmm. and that's just a tough position to be in where right. um, a, a young man may be feeling like he's choosing against his family. Whereas folks from a different class background, 
see college as, yeah, I'm going to college because my, my family can pay for it. We can afford it. Mm-hmm. And you're just in a different position. And so I, I, we, you know, that's why I say we have to be careful because everybody's situation ain't the same. And as easy as it is to oversimplify a narrative about people who go to college or the people who care about education, that's just completely misguided and doesn't take into account, you know, the points that you've raised around family sociology or, you know, class background. You know, it, it, the other thing is, Folks, folks are pretty aware. So, like, even guys that I've talked to, like, how much, you, how much student loan debt do you think you're gonna be? And I'm, I'm trying to work on this new paper. I asked them about student loan debt, and and so some of the, some of the guys before they ever get to college, they're, they're making a cost benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. No, college is gonna cost me this much. I ain't trying to go in debt like that. So, again, military may be an option for some guys because it'll give you some educational benefits and paying for school, mm-hmm. or I'm going to go and work for a while and maybe I'll go to school part-time. So whatever kind of trajectory or pathway that people are choosing, we really got to look at that within the context of their lives and not, you know, and, and we know that community colleges are bastardized as well, right? You go to community college for, you know, people look at you as like, you're not smart. Mm-hmm. First of all, community college is one of the best investments that you have because it allows you to go at your own pace in a sense, right? Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's, it can, it can have community colleges offer much more flexible schedules than four year institutions. Right. As an example, I was teaching, uh, I used to teach at a community college and I taught a late start course. That was a four hour course from six to 10 at night. So you could work eight to five and come take this class and you're getting both done. Right. Uh, so we have some we have some ways that we language and narrate and 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 position things like community colleges or backgrounds that people uh, may be from that continues to kind of create this burden that they're carrying with them and 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 really underappreciates the efforts that folks are making in order to um, you know increase their their life outcomes or expand their life outcomes. Mm, absolutely, yeah. It's interesting the, the the kind of the status that we place on certain things. Because, you know, it makes a lot more sense for a lot of people to to just go to community college to graduate with a degree without having that debt. And then you can, you know, move into the workforce as opposed to going into all this debt and then starting off in the workforce just already behind because, you you know, you have to pay off all that debt and uh, with the interest and things like that, um, you know, but one last question for you. And this is kind of a, a divergence from what we've talked about a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we went to a, so we did a panel at Smith college and we talked about activism through social media, activism as marginalized students on college campuses, mainly at predominantly white institutions. One of the questions that we got from a student at Smith college was how do we engage black men in activism, um, and in other things like that on college campuses and just in general, because a lot of the times when you go to a black student union meeting at, at a, a particular college, or if you go to some sort of community organized event, the majority of what you're going to see behind that is black women, all right? So the question, and I wanna hear your take on this because we were stumped, you know, Sebastian and I, as black men who were you know, involved in activism and, and in community organizing, we're like, you know, I don't really know how we engage other black men. And that's definitely been something that we've tried to do um, but there is, there's kind of a, a roadblock there. So what would you say is the best way to engage black men in activism and community organizing and those kinds of things? All right. I'm smiling. Cause that's, that's a critical question, right? And we need it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if we were to look at Black Student Union or you know whatever that naming of this 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 organization is on college campuses, overwhelmingly, it's uh, uh, it's members, it's participants, um, and by members, I'm talking about people who show up, not just people who are members on paper, mm-hmm. uh, are, are overwhelmingly Black women, right? Even in um, social movements, the Me Too movement, Black Lives yeah. Matter, all you know. Is, is black women yeah, so I, I think it's a couple of things, right? And, and and I'm a I'm a student of history. And when I taught in in high schools, I taught uh, in, in Chicago and DC. I taught I taught history because I think that history provides us with an opportunity to understand so much more. Um, and I also believe that the past is never simply the past, right? It's it's, it's with us in the present, and it has utility in the present. And so. Um, I think I think that what we see, you know, in the current moment really comes out of a lot of what we saw in the Black freedom movement during the, the mid 20th century. Right. I, so I refer to the civil rights movement more so as the Black freedom movement to be more inclusive, because when you say civil rights movement, that means it doesn't include the Black Panther Party. It doesn't include Black mm-hmm. power, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one of the things that we know about any in every social movement in the United States that involved black folks, black women were leading, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm not talking about positionality, right? <clears throat> so I'm from that Ella Baker school that strong people don't need strong leaders because we're all leaders, right? Um, and so when I think about some of this history, you know, if we think about SCLC, if we think about SNCC, if we think about uh, the Montgomery bus boycott, that's one of my favorite subjects because folks are really just confused because we really are terrible in teaching about the bus boycott because mm. uh, they talk about Martin Luther King and they don't talk about, uh, uh, you know, folks like, uh, uh, of course, I'm Joanne Robinson, right, who starts the Women Political Council in 1949 mm-hmm. because she was thrown off a bus in Montgomery. Mm. So before five years before we get to the, six years before we get to the Montgomery bus boycott, Joanne Robinson and black women had already begun organizing black folks in the city to uh, resist and push back against this segregation law about black folks riding on the back of the bus. Anyway, uh, without giving this kind of history lecture, uh, what we see when we transform to Black Panther Party uh, is going back to your question, Rachel, and, and this is where I see connection, uh, is patriarchy, right? And so one of, the, one of the challenges that we have is how do we get Black men invo- involved without Black men feeling like they have to be in charge of everything, right? And so there's a way that collectively, I'm not speaking for every Black man, but collectively, there's a way that if we're not in charge, if we feel like we're not running something, if we feel like we're not in control of something, uh, for too many of us, that gets translated as I'm being disempowered, right? Um, so it becomes a positioning where we then pit ourselves against Black women. Mm. 100%, absolutely unnecessarily, right? Absolutely unnecessarily. Uh, but what we saw, and, and the reason I pointed to kind of the history of these social movements is because we saw that kind of that, you know, again, I can look back, we can look back with better vision to offer some critiques of SCLC, of SNCC, of CORE, right, uh, of civil rights organizations, of civil rights movement activities where 
you know, the, I'm thinking specifically about the SNCC position paper on black women, right? With uh, Stokely, I, and I'm not going to say this out loud, just because it's not, it's not, it's so problematic. That's I'm saying it that way. But basically, there ain't no position for black women, right? Other than mm-hmm. to yep. be in the kitchen or right. through sexual relationships, right? And, and these ain't healthy sexual relationships. So there was already this chasm that had been built up over years where black women felt as if they were being in the in the in movements for black liberation. How are you gonna silence black women? Like wh- right. Mm-hmm. And they're the so, ones doing, you know, all that or all these protests and as, stuff, y'all are running. Who's feeding you? So Who's we look at your kids. Who's giving you a place to stay? I'm sorry, but no, yeah. this, but this is it, right? <laughs> so when we look at mm-hmm. there is no there is no Montgomery bus boycott without black women. I don't care who right. Dr. King is elevated because of black women, mm-hmm. not because he was so great in 1955. I mean, I'm not saying he wasn't great. I'm just saying that black women invited him in and gave him a platform. Mm-hmm. And again, it wasn't this uh, competition between I need to get up and be the speaker. Black women organized the meetings. They showed up at the church meetings. Uh, they 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 cooked, as Rachel said, right? They they passed out information. So anyway, when we when we think about you know kind of what's happening in some ways, uh, I, again, I, I I it's difficult for me to look at it without thinking about the ways that we're socialized into our manhood scripts, and mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, the fragility of our masculinity, right? Where we're so concerned with seeing being seen as weaker or less than, if we're not in the front, if we're not leading, if we're not in control, that uh, we might disengage. On the one hand, on the other hand, I, I and this is where we 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 gonna have some trouble for a while. Um, is for too many of us as men, we have a complete misunderstanding of feminism. We have a complete misunderstanding of ways that we might be able to support and work with Black women, and we're not in competition. And that's why I talk about manhood and masculinity, right? Because hegemonic masculinity or traditional masculinity is really about competition and dominance, right? That don't work well for liberation. We can't get liberated if you're talking about dominating over me, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and so, I think there's a lot of work that we have, there's a lot of work that we have to do within our families and our communities to build healthy relationships so that we better understand that the only way we can really get towards liberation is doing so collectively, right? If one of us ain't free, ain't none of us free, right? So we have to understand that our our liberation is equally yoked. Um, We have to understand that there are ways that black women will show up and lead and contribute and offer us so much more than we even ask for, that we even realize. So we have to, you know, give black women props for holding us down in ways that, it, to to be real, like we don't even deserve sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but again, we also have to look at that as that's not that's not a crit- a criticism of us, right? Um, how do we how do we how do how do black men find space to? be dependent on others and not have it feel as if that's an attack on their manhood and masculinity. That's why I bring up those things. And that's why I think about these, you know, this history of 
strife between black men and black women within this kind of bounded context that built up over time that uh, suggests that we can't be co-laborers in our efforts for liberation. Um, and as long as we're taking that, the folks who are oppressing us, they ain't, they ain't even got to do much, right? Mm -hmm. we, can, we can keep butting heads with each other and then we disengage and then our collective efforts are weakened because we're not showing up. Mm. Um, so I, I think that's one thing. I think I think another thing is that, uh, and this is why what I talk about a lot when I'm working with, with young brothers is that we, 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 we can't let school interfere with our education, right? Mm. So there are some things that we really need to learn and get a hold of, and that's education, right? That's in the realm of education. School is just a building, right? Or a collection of buildings. Right. Just because you go to school don't mean you learn. Let's just be clear, right? So part of what you know, I think that we have to learn is, we well, I think there's a number of things. I, I think that there are ways in which black men are not allowed there's ways in which black men are not allowed to be vulnerable. There's ways in which black men are socialized away from emotionality, affection with the A, uh, vulnerabilities. And then it shows up in how we're not able to open up to others and talk about just needing help or uh, about uh, wanting to be able to support something even as you're trying to learn at the same time what it is that we're supporting. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit complex and I, I apologize. I, I feel like I'm kind of getting a little bit all over the place, but- That's okay. Yeah. You're good, you're good. It's a complex it's a, subject, but you've- Yeah, yeah. So so, 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 so I think, so I, I try to lay out this bit of history because I think it shows up in multiple types of ways, right? Like if black men aren't leading something, then we translate that as, oh, it must not be important. Like we have to check ourselves on that, right? Mm. Because what we end up doing then is not being there for other people, black women in particular, who need us, who are always there for us in a number of different ways. Um, how do we how do we engage, you know, black men in, in, in some of these activities? I think we have to continue to teach them. Uh, we have to continue to support them. We have to continue to encourage them. And at the same time, right, I'm not going to keep begging folks to show up when we're trying to fight for liberation because... Mm -hmm. If you ain't showing up, then you're not necessarily invested, and we we can't have no part-time liberators like that, right? Like like the work Harriet Tubman. I'm I'm gonna go history. I mean, like Harriet Tubman wasn't no part-time. Like you got to be anointed to mm. to say I'm gonna go back multiple times for more folks. So when we start talking about like activism, you know, part of activism means it's gonna cost you something. Mm. Some of that could be time, right? Mm. Some of that could be reputation, right? Some of that might be friends, acquaintances, and associates. And I'm a big believer in we got to show up for our collective because we all we got, right? Um, we, we've got to support each other. We've got to hold each other down. We got to hold each other, not just down, I shouldn't say that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just thinking about the visual of we got to hold each other up. Uh, we got to have each other's back because there's 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 too many ways in which we're already being downpressed on the one hand, and there's too much work and sacrifice 
and investments that our elders and our ancestors have made for us to be at a point where we're clashing with each other and we're not moving forward. So, uh, so I think about patriarchy, I think about manhood, I think about masculinity a lot. Um, and it shows up in, a, in various ways that might uh, influence a young brother to disengage from a particular space because of how they might be reading, interpreting, or making sense of that space without a real healthy conception of how this may, even if it doesn't benefit me, this could benefit other folks coming behind me. Mm. And that's a worthy cause, mm. right? So, uh, I, and, I'm, and I'm trying to be general enough that it, it, it paints a broad picture. Yeah, and because, respectfully, yeah. men have the privilege to not, I don't know, I always say this, like black men, you know, they, they fall into that Venn diagram with white women sometimes because they are marginalized in one way, but then they have privilege in another way. Mm-hmm. And that privilege allows them to not, you know, to say, oh, I don't have to think about this. Or yeah. if I do this thing, I can escape this part of me, right? But it, and that's not true, right? That's a fallacy within themselves that they have, you know, somehow convinced themselves, but that's part of it that fuels this ability to just be like, mm. Privilege is privilege. I mean, privilege is definitely a part of. It. That's why I talk about patriarchy and masculinity, right? Gender privilege is real, and there's various ways that men benefit from gender privilege that black women will never benefit from gender privilege because we live in a patriarchal society, right? So there's rewards we get for, um, you know, engaging in particular types of ideologies and behaviors that uh, not only do women not get, but it all, they also work against women as well. So we got a lot of work to do. Um, Amen. Um, I think that I think that we need to have more conversations about patriarchy because I think part of that privilege is we don't even know how it operates and how we might be contributing to it mm-hmm. if we're not interrogating it, right? Yeah. Um, in what ways do? In what ways are just as an example? Do in what ways might black women on our campus? Either are they, they might be sponsoring an activity, they might be facilitating an activity. And, you know, the question for me is, why don't we just go out to, 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 to support those sisters, whatever it is, right? And if we're not willing to have those kind of conversations, I think we limit the progress we can make, um, at least in the short term, um, as it relates to um, holding each other up and, and, and working collect, literally collectively towards our, you know, our best ends or towards um, collective uplift uh, because when, and I'm particularly thinking, you know, we can talk about this in general, but when I'm particularly thinking about these historically white or predominantly white institutions, when you start talking about, you know, places like BYU, places like University of Tennessee, places like University of Chicago, where black student Enrollment is way less than ten percent, right? Hmm, way less. It's than difficult. 10%. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah, I get you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> man, when I saw that statistic on BYU, that was that was a tough one to swallow. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And it and it makes it makes, right? It it makes our blackness stand out even more mm-hmm. um, when we're really in a number of different ways, not part of the central fabric of the institution. And we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we belong? What's our place? How do how might we come together collectively to, to help us move forward? Um, so I, I think, you know, 
we've got to continue to socialize, encourage, support black men to interrogate, uh, you know, ways that institutions are structured, how these institutions are run, what it means to be actively engaged, and how, you know, folks might benefit, even if it's not just the, and it would always be not just the individual, but how we benefit collectively if folks are willing to show up um, and support. And the way I think about it is we have to take this other-centered approach because if it wasn't for my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my father's generation, I wouldn't be here. So part of our responsibility has got to be to help transform these places, you know, within a particular context and set of boundaries into better spaces for the folks who are coming behind us who might be showing up next. Love that. I think we'll just leave it right there. Yeah. We, uh, man, thank you so much for sharing that. That's yes. very insightful. And it's a much better answer than the one that we gave. I don't even remember what we said, but <laughs> but uh, that, that gives me a lot to think about for sure. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing a little bit of, of the research that you've done, the wisdom that you've gained um, through your time as a professor and as a researcher. Um, and then, you know, we just we're going to move into recommendations. We have one last part of the show. I don't think we explained it to you at the beginning, but it's where we just okay. recommend something to our audience. Uh, so it can be a book, it can be a movie, a TV mm. show, it can be a particular food, uh, anything like that. So just be thinking of something that you want to recommend to the audience. Uh, let's see, Rachel, do you want to go first? You want me to go first? You go first, Nate. All right, cool. So my recommendation, I don't know if I recommended it before, but I'm going to recommend it again. Abbott oh. Elementary. Oh, no, you haven't recommended it. I haven't recommended it. Okay, so there's this TV show called Abbott Elementary. Um, it's in its second season, just got renewed for a third. It is a mockumentary style television show written and I believe produced by a black woman named Quinta yes. Brunson. Yes. Uh, she just won all kind of Golden Globes and Emmys yes. um, for both her role in the show as well as her writing of the show. And it's a show about, uh, it's kind of funny that we talk about this today and that this is my recommendation because it's a show about the educational system and how it affects uh, lower income areas, but it's told in a, in, a, in a comedy form. So it talks about you know the, the situations that teachers have to deal with teaching in low income schools and the ways that they have to just kind of make things work and make it the, make it the best uh, experience possible for their students. But it's told in such a hilarious way, such a humorous way um, that it just kind of leaves you, you know, happy, but also better understanding uh, what's going on in that particular situation. So it kind of goes back to the, the lived experience of a lot of, of, of black boys and girls, um, you know, in the education system, it, 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 it touches on that. Um, but anyway, I highly recommend it. It's called Abbott Elementary, A-B-B-O-T Elementary. You can find it on Hulu, um, and I believe. Well, I mean, it's also on TV, but who watches TV anymore? So you can find it on Hulu and, uh, and watch all the episodes and you will, you'll love it. So that's my recommendation for this week. Um, okay, I think I want to recommend a TV show too. Have I recommended this before? Have I recommended The Shy? No, you haven't. Okay. How fitting for today. Exactly. That's why I'm recommending it. Okay. <laughs> um, hold on. I, I want to get the person who wrote it name right. But The Shy, it's a, sh it's a, a TV show about um, Chicago. It takes place on the South Side. I love it so much because it 
all the characters are separate, but then they're related because like their stories aren't aligned at first, but then they all become aligned. The see the show gets better as it goes along. Um, it's really, really good. It's I mean, as a Chicagoan, I watch it and it feels so true. The music is Chicago music, um, but the storyline is really, really good. It um, it tells a story about a young boy, and then it tells the story about an older man who end up meeting each other and like how their lives intertwine. But it talks about like different generations. It talks about trauma. It talks about like violence on the south side, but also like kids who are trying to escape it. So it's a very real, but like not necessarily in this like black struggle way, but just in like a this is real life kind of way. Like it's just I don't know. I really really like it because it's not this typical like oh you know. I just feel like there's sometimes someone's like, oh, this group in the hood, life is hard, but it's like, no, this is just my life. And like, what can I do to be a successful person and good in the circumstances in which I live in? And uh, Jacob Lattimore is in it. And I hated his character at first, but I've come to love him so much um, because he's like a guy who has like five baby mamas. And so you're like, you kind of hate him at first and he's just kind of terrible, but you just come to love him. Um, so it's a really good show. And I think it's on season five. Yeah, season five. Okay, so. Jacob Lattimore or uh, the Shy. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, so I'm a I'm a I'm a quote unquote cheat a little bit. I'm gonna give two. Okay. There you go. Uh, and they're in my view, they're they're interrelated in a number of different ways. Uh, so my first recommendation is for, you know, this is we're still in Black History Month, of course, mm-hmm. and. I'm 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 black 365, but I still also celebrate the month, uh, given the efforts that we've made to to get others to recognize our contributions to history, culture, life, et cetera. So my first recommendation is inviting folks to, you know, learn more about and engage with and invest in what Dr. King talks about as the beloved community. Uh-huh. And uh I want to put this recommendation out there as an invitation and for folks to do some self-reflection and discernment on uh, how we can make the beloved community a possibility. And, uh, you know, that can, we can, we can talk about how that might manifest in a number of ways, but I'm particularly thinking about that last question that you all asked about uh, like mean engagement, mm-hmm. you know, on campus, or we can think about, you know, questions that Rachel asked around, uh, family sociology. So how do we, how do we get a collective of folks to really buy into this idea that we are just better together, right? Um, one of the things I'm thinking about. One of the things that that R.G. Lord said, um, and I'm paraphrasing. You know, it's not our differences that it, that divides us. Is how we think about those differences or the meanings we assign to those differences that really divide us. And so how might we embrace our similarities and our differences and the ways that we might even diverge so that we can build something that's just better and greater than ourselves. Um, so I'm, I'm, I wanna recommend this, the, the, right? So I'm inviting folks to, or I'm encouraging folks to go back and engage with some, some, some Dr. King beyond the one quote from I Have a Dream speech. Mm-hmm. That we, <laughs> here every January, um, and especially thinking about the ways and the divisiveness, you know, even as you all talked about Representative Hollins and some of the work that she's doing, 
right? How do we how do we bring folks together because it all this beloved community also can contribute to healing as well? Because I think there are some ways that we're acting out of hurt, right? Or we're acting out of fear. Relatedly, uh, and I'm thinking about uh, this sister because she recently passed, uh, but also because of her brilliance and her genius. So I'm thinking about Bell Hooks. Oh, yes. I want to recommend uh, one of her later books, All About Love. I have been wanting to read this. There you go. I just teed it up for you, Rachel. I'm I'm, I'm tossing it to you right there. Let me add it to Um, my list. Yeah. So I won't say too much about it other than, um, you know, literally, I just, you know, when I think about Dr. King and I just mentioned his beloved community, um, you know, you know, a, 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 a significant principle that Dr. King operated on. And so we can talk about our faith communities. We can talk about um, our families. We can talk about our social networks. A, 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 a critical principle that Dr. King operated on and acted on through his activism was love, right? Um, he wrote a book called Strength to Love that was about uh, the Montgomery bus. I think that was published in 1957, a little bit after the, the bus boycott. Montgomery Bus Boycott. But anyway, I'm thinking about Bell Hooks, and, and Bell Hooks has written several books that incorporate, engage with, or center on love in a number of different ways. And what I'll say about this book is that throughout these chapters, uh, she's really given us, you know, this kind of call to action, right? Love is not this static thing. It doesn't, it's not something that, you know, exists in a bottle, et cetera. It's something that we can embody and walk with each day. So I'm just thinking about the ways that we need love around us that can also contribute to some of the healing, some of the friction, some of the fractions, some of the ways that we might not see eye to eye. But because I love you, I'm going to show up and be willing to hear with a different set of ears, if you will, than holding on to what I kind of previously thought, et cetera. So uh, All About Love, Bell Hooks is my second recommendation. Um, especially given that you know we're still early in the in the year 2023, and thinking about these roads that we got to continue to walk and these mountains we got to continue to climb in the in the days and months ahead, um, I think that you know we can if we can establish and stand rooted in our our core principles. I think we can we can get much further along. Love that. Love Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Brooms, everybody. Thank you so much for being on the show. We appreciate you. Brother Nate, Rachel, it's been a pleasure and an honor to be here with you all. I hope I can get invited back. We can talk about some more stuff. Oh, oh yes. Definitely. Uh, definitely. You know, definitely look forward to that opportunity. And I'll be reaching out to you all just with another thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to just talk, build community, engage, and share. For sure. Thank you for coming on. And I'm sure you and Rachel can catch up about Chicago and whatever else. Another time, <laughs> since y'all are best friends now, apparently. Yes. Chicago and sociology. Right. Dr. Roof falls in that bucket too. You know, you notice that? that yeah. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> all right. Appreciate you all. Thank Talk you so to you much. soon. All right, Dr. Right. Brooms, have a good one. Okay. We'll catch y'all Thank next you week. Both. Thank you for joining us on the Black Menace podcast today. Make sure to follow us on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at the Black Menaces. And make sure to subscribe to our Patreon, the Menace Society, where you can get bonus content from us on the podcast, as well as extra clips from our videos that we film. And don't forget to email us at Black Menace 
podcast at gmail.com for minutes moments or any other questions that you want us to answer because this show is for you guys thank you and remember always be a menace thank you